Welcome to Status. This is Jihan Tekai. I'm here with uh, Yasemin Özay, who's a PhD candidate in anthropology at CUNY Graduate Center. She's working on her dissertation research, which is on Syrian urban refugees. Uh, and she's been conducting her fieldwork here in Fatih, Istanbul, since January 2019. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So I'll get straight to the chase. There's been a recent wave of uh, deportations and relocations of Syrian refugees mm -hmm. uh, from here in Turkey into uh, Idlib, Syria, and as well as uh, local relocations. So yes. Could you tell us a little bit about what what's been happening? How and why has the government's policy changed then? So at the moment, we actually have a pretty urgent situation. It's, it's an alarming situation. So for about a month now, basically there has been a crackdown on uh, migrant and refugee communities, specifically in Istanbul, but throughout the country. Be because of their sheer number, Syrians have been targeted the most, mm -hmm. especially in the post-election Turkey after the ruling party has lost two of the biggest cities in Turkey. One of the explanations for this, this loss has been the voters growing discontent with Syrians in their cities due to deepening economic recession, um, unemployment rates that's just going up, um, increase in rents, and all kinds of uh, structural, very structural economic problems and social ills have been sort of blamed on Syrian refugees in, in big cities, especially in mm -hmm. Istanbul. So I think as a response to that, that's one of the explanations that I come up with and a lot of analysts come up with. The government has taken on, initiated this crackdown on Syrian refugees in the neighborhoods that they, they live in high concentrations, such as the one we're sitting right now in, in Fatih, but also in Esenyurt, in the peripheries of the city, in Esenna, certain parts of Beyoğlu, where huge migrant communities. And now I, I want to make it clear that although it's mostly Syrian refugees who've been affected, deportations and detentions, mass detentions in um, temporary sort of detention centers have included people from Afghanistan, people from Pakistan, people from Central Asian countries and African countries who have been working in in the large informal undocumented job sector in, in Istanbul. So what's been happening um, is uh, it's, it's eerily comparable to what, what's been going on in the U.S. in terms of ICE raids. So very, very similar things have been happening. There have been raids to businesses, um, even residential homes. There's been a lot of random police checks, ID checks at met metro stations and big squares. 
such as Aksaray Square right here throughout uh, Istanbul. And so the official uh, explanation and statements about this this crackdown has been th- this is this is the quote unquote sort of framing of the operation is that it's a it's for combating or battling irregular illegal immigration in the country and it's framed as a security issue as a national security issue as a public order issue as a crackdown on criminals without registrations and IDs but what's been happening is this absolutely terrifying atmosphere of fear and anxiety on the parts of Syrians and a lot of migrant communities to the point that men for for weeks now have been too afraid to get out of their houses, leave their apartments, to go to work and thus make an income to feed the family. So we have this intense uh, atmosphere of fear and panic. So could you tell us a little bit how this has been legally possible since the Syrians are supposed to be refugees here in Turkey. So I'm wondering what is the system under which they are living here and how it's been legally possible to so easily deport and relocate some of the population here. That is such a crucial question because I think it's at the root of what's happening. And honestly, given the sort of very precarious legal category that Syrians find themselves in in this country sort of as as scholars uh, researchers as um, you know solidarity activists and human rights activists we've been sort of unfortunately afraid of this that this this moment would come and that's precisely because Syrian refugees in Turkey even though I refer to them as refugees as a sort of as a political move um, are not actually refugees they're not under this category So just to give you a sort of a background information about this, the single most important um, international human rights um, legislation regarding refugees that defines who a refugee is and in what conditions and the rights and protections that they're entitled to, which is the 1951 Geneva Convention on the Status of Refugees, was produced right after World War II in Europe. So that was the very sort of concrete historical context that it was produced. Turkey was a signatory, it signed the convention. However, the convention came with uh, geographical and temporal restrictions. So it was specific and unique to the time uh, that of its construction. Right. But over the years, you know, the following decades, obviously, you know, refugee populations and huge people's movements came from the global global south, not from Europe. That's when the protocol, the 1967 protocol, as an amendment was then ratified, which then um, sort of got rid of those um, both geographical and time restrictions. Mm-hmm. So now you know, people from all over the world, especially people now coming to Europe as refugees were recognized as refugees if they were running away from persecution, war, due to their um, political identities, religious identities, so forth. What Turkey did was that it did not remove the geographical uh, restriction in this protocol. Right. So it, it signed the original one, but that means to this day, As, as silly as that sounds, Turkey only recognizes people as refugees if they're coming from Europe, which means that Syrians are not refugees. 
After the start of the revolution in 2011, which then turned into an incredibly complicated and violent war, civil war and then sort of a proxy international war in Syria meant that uh, you know people started coming in en masse, crossing the southern border of Turkey and coming in to seek refuge in Turkey. And to give it credit, Turkey has um, implemented what it called an open door policy until about 2015. So Syrians could come in, cross the border, take refuge, take protection, but under this um, specifically constructed sort of rather limbo legal status, which is called temporary protection status, which means that they are not refugees. They do not have those internationally recognized rights and guarantees that, that refugees would have. Mm -hmm. So temporary protection category meant a couple of things. One of them, which I think is sort of the biggest investment that Turkey has made for Syrians, is that they were able to have access to healthcare in public hospitals for free, just like citizens would. And they were also able to register their kids in public schools in Turkey. And after the EU-Turkey deal that was done in March 2016, and with the funding that came from EU, a minority, the most vulnerable minority of Syrians, were also able to get what's called a Kızılay card, which is an aid card um, that you know, helped financially the most vulnerable families. But the criteria is very strict. It has to be a family of five people with kids under the age of 18. There has to be a person with a certain kind of disability or chronic illness, so it's kind of hard. And to give you an idea, you know, according to the Interior Ministry and the Directorate of um, Migration Management, there's now about um, 3.6 million Syrians under refugee, um, under this uh, temporary protection in Turkey, but given the number of unregistered people, it's probably closer to 4 million. And Kızılay card serves only a minority of, of this community. So these are the rights and entitlements that come with this, with this status. However, this status also means that Syrians who are registered in the cities that they arrive get their kimliks, temporary protection kimliks, IDs, in those cities, which means they have to reside and work only in those cities. Even to go to another city for an emergency, for a medical condition, for business or for a visit to family members, they do need to get travel permissions from local authorities, which means I'm just trying to explain this as a way to give you an idea of the restriction and regulation of the movement and mobility of Syrians. Also, temporary protection does not guarantee at all a work permit, which means that you know, the majority, more than 90% of Syrians are urban refugees living in the cities on their own, which means they have to work and feed themselves and their families. Yet getting work permits, which must be always sponsored and initiated by the employer, is an extremely difficult, complicated, and financially burdensome sort of process, bureaucratic process. So we have, I, of course there are exceptions, of course there have been, um, white color professional Syrians who have gotten uh, their citizenship or who've gotten um, work permits, that's only a minority. I'm talking about this huge 
huge population of people living in this rather temporary, unpredictable conditions of legal conditions and conditions of life that makes life pretty hard in terms of making uh, plans for the future for, for their kids for their you know 10 years down the line and I, I have to say that this one of the biggest parts of this sort of precarity that Syrians find themselves in that's um, that accompanied this legal category of non-refugee but temporary protection has been the discourse of the government from day one which has referred to Syrians as our guests yes, right right which I mean it Built in that meaning, in that word, is a temporariness, a stay for a limited amount of time. You know, hospitality runs out, there's a deadline, one goes back home. And now we're at that moment, you know, from the beginning, as people in solidarity with Syrians and with migrant communities, we've been saying that that is such a detrimental language that sort of has prepared the ground for what's been happening today that's misled the Turkish public as well and their expectations of you know the cities they live in now they live with you know especially in in Fatih that we're sitting right now people do live with Syrian neighbors there are co-residents there are neighbors they're in the same schools that our kids go to they're in the same hospitals waiting in the lobby with us so this temporary guest um, discourse has been completely uh, misleading, I think, to the Turkish people, which has added, on top of the economic, deepening economic recession, to the now rise of extreme xenophobia, hate speech, attacks in certain parts of Istanbul, like Küçük uh, Çekmece, that just happened only a month ago. So it's, I mean, we're really at a very... Uh, concerning, alarming moment that there's a political consensus along all the parties from left to right that Syrians have become a problem, mm -hmm. a social problem, an economic problem, and hospitality has run out and they, they're scapegoated, much like what's been happening in Europe and in the US with the current government. But it's, I mean, we see this, we've been seeing this, and now it's happening as a very sort of systematically implemented policy with the recent crackdowns. Uh, I'm wondering, despite all of this, what kind of lives have Syrians in Turkey been able to build for themselves since 2011 in terms of work, education, mm -hmm. relationships with their neighbors, mm -hmm good and bad in many ways. We know that there is a rising uh, xenophobia and a kind of, especially focused on the Syrians, as you've been talking about. But I'm also wondering what kind of relationships are being built here and what kind of futures can Syrians that hopefully get to stay in Turkey as long as it's right. unsafe for them to go to Syria to, or maybe longer, right? right. What kind of future right. are they facing? Um, I think that's the devastating part as I've been, you know, interviewing families, talking to Syrians for months now. It seems like after huge traumas, right? After a huge displacement, war, um, having lost property, having lost family members, having lost uh, everything in, in certain cases, 
actually people have been able to make lives, reconstruct certain lives. That and, and that's the devastating part, that all of a sudden with this change of events and this crackdown and this attack, this systematic attack, all these lives that have been kind of fragilely yet beautifully sort of put together in, in Istanbul and in other cities is just turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And that's devastating to sort of witness. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example. So a family I know in Esenyurt, which is, you know, it takes you two hours making three stops, three transfers from Fatih to get to Esenyurt, right? It's kind of in the peripheries. There is a, you know, huge um, textile garment sort of informal sector happening. So there are jobs uh, there for Syrians to have, even though, you know, I can talk about the exploita labor exploitation that they do suffer daily. There has been job opportunities and, you know, the chance to put down some roots, if I may say so, over the four, five, six years. We're talking about eight years, it's 2019. If this, the first movement into Turkey started in 2011 and then really rose up in the following years, we're talking about a pretty long period of time where families, you know, had kids who started school here. The families I know have children or teenagers who are now trilingual that they seamlessly switch between Arabic, Turkish, and if they're Kurdish, Kurdish. I mean, this is a new generation of Syrians who have made Istanbul and Turkey their homes. And no matter how fragile and exposed they've been, they have been able to make financial, social, uh, emotional investments in this place, in this city. Right. And they have made neighbors. You know, they have their kids go to school. Um, they have aspirations to go to college in this country. They have aspirations to perhaps become citizens one day, especially second generation, third generation. So we're talking about uh, a huge amount of effort and labor put into making a new life after a, a very big trauma. And all of a sudden, those very precariously held lives, yet dignified, difficult but dignified lives are at risk. Mm -hmm. And, and this family that I mentioned, for example, they have been living in Esenyurt for about three years. Um, their older daughter go to school. She just finished her second grade. She speaks good Turkish. Um, the husband works, yes, undocumented, but as a, as a what's called a ortacı in, in textile garment uh, factories, which means this sort of all-purpose uh, sort of employee who does everything from cleaning the floor to mm -hmm. working the machine and assembling certain, you know, textile pieces to fetching something from outside. So he has been working, you know, pretty regularly bringing money to home. The, the wife, the mother of the family has been attending Turkish class and making neighbors with her neighbor from Hatay who also speaks Arabic, fluent Arabic, she's bilingual. Right. So, I mean, we are talking about a certain, uh, you know, life with a relative predictability ha that's been happening for three years. This family, uh, with the 20th of August deadline given by the uh, Istanbul gover uh, the governor of Istanbul mm -hmm. and the Ministry of Interior, for those who are not registered in Istanbul, if their kimliks, their IDs are not registered in Istanbul, they have to leave 
by the deadline, which ends tomorrow, to go back to the cities that they're registered. The family, the wife, happens to be registered in Gebze, which is okay, close to Istanbul, with the two kids. The father of the family happens to be registered in Hatay, which is in southern Turkey. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking about a family separation. And, you know, the, the family in the, you know, next 28 hours, uh, sorry, 48 hours had to pick up all their furniture and their stuff, move out of the apartment and, you know, move to Gebze. The father is going to come with them. They're going to apply for his transfer of Kimlik from Hatay to Gebze, which there's a possibility it will happen, but there's a possibility it might not. Right. With the bureaucratic process being so opaque usually and very, very lengthy. And, you know, I have this woman who is sort of in tears saying that she, you know, she's going to think about her options that she does not want to separate her family. She wants her husband with her. She wants the kids to have the father with them. They've already been separated and traumatized once. So she actually told me, you know, if that can't happen, I might take my chances back in Syria and with the war. And it is not a, a, safe, a safe place to go back to, not only because there's still bombs falling, but also because there's no infrastructure, there's no jobs, there's no possibility for a livelihood. Because if her husband, if he crosses over to the Syrian side, he might very well be arrested, um, detained, possibly recruited by either the regime army or one of the militias, opposition militias, um, who are also looking for soldiers for their armies. So, you know, in, in this very unsafe, uh, insecure, volatile war zone, she's thinking about, well, what are my options? So that makes me think that um, this is the re-traumatization of a whole community of people who are just now trying to rebuild lives. Right. And her, her fears are not unfounded. So since the beginning of the crackdown, both in national and international media, as well as social media, is full of news of deportations back to Syria even though the government has been denying this. How many would you say? The process is so opaque that there's no information coming in. Mm. We want to say hundreds. I mean, we have documented cases. We have video recordings of people who have been um, handcuffed plastic with plastic handcuffs on the floor sitting in a bus to be deported back to Syria. We have testimonies from people being held in mass detention centers, uh, temporary detention centers, who have not been able to access any, you know, interpreters or um, legal assistance. You know, we have the testimonies of families whose male members have been deported and called them back. So th there's this accumulating evidence, although we don't know the exact numbers, and although the state keeps denying that deportations, which goes against the non-refoulement principle of human rights, mm -hmm. international human rights law, it's been saying that we've just been sort of checking IDs. If they're not registered in Istanbul, we're sending them back to the provinces that they're registered. If they are, quote-unquote, um, criminals then they're detained if they don't have ids we take we try to take care of it but there has been an absolute denial of of deportations 
um, which sort of goes against clear evidence. In terms of the relocations, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit why people might be living outside of the cities, um, outside of the cities in which they were initially mm-hmm. registered. Is it lack of infrastructure or structure of the labor market, or why do you think this is such a um, big phenomenon? That, right. Right. Um, my answer would be because of the same reasons that domestic migrants come to big cities like Istanbul. I mean, exactly the same thing that they share with Syrians who end up, you know, they find their way to Istanbul, even if they're registered in Hatay or uh, wherever, Kilis or something like that. Right. There is a huge job market, which is sort of, undoc- there's an undocumented job market where the people can find jobs. Yes, jobs that exploit their labor that, you know, I've heard horrible stories of people working at least for 12 hours per day with very little break, um, with, you know, months of working without pay, uh, abuses at the hands of terrible bosses, um, working obviously without insurance or any, any chances of having a retirement fund. You know, people let go without any explanation at a moment's notice and all these things. So it's a very precarious and, you know, abusive labor market. But there are jobs that they wouldn't be able to find back in those smaller cities. So that's, you know, that's one of the major reasons that Syrians would tell you. Another one is, yes, infrastructure. Um, You know, there are a lot of families with um, either disabled members or members with, you know, chronic disease, who needs medical attention, there are better hospitals here, there are better schools here. Uh, For women and LGBTQ, for example, Syrians, which, you know, do exist, for example, women who've divorced their husbands, the anonymity of a big city might give them freedom, just like, you know, domestic migrants coming from Anatolia to the big city. So these are the, you know, very similar um, reasons why people end up here. And just to give you an idea about um, it's estimated that about a million Syrians now live in, in Istanbul, and only half of that is registered according to the numbers given by the uh, governor of Istanbul. So, and Istanbul has stopped registering, by the way, Syrians into the city, so giving people Istanbul um, ID cards, I think two years ago, um, I'm pretty sure. Right. But that didn't stop people from coming here because of, of all these reasons. It just made them more vulnerable mm-hmm. and undocumented. And now with this crackdown, what we are seeing is families separated, people deported, people sent to detention centers, people too afraid to go out of their apartments, people who can't go to work and thus pay their rents, and people just living in fear in a city that they've been living for years now, that they finally felt like they belonged to. And all of a sudden, a huge community of the city that you and I live in are too afraid to go out. Can you imagine the sort of psychological effects of that, the, the kind of space that we are creating? It's, I mean, it's very, very um, worrying, to say the least. Right. Um, speaking of that, you talked a little bit about solidarity work. So, and also, I imagine that um, work that 
um, Syrian activists themselves have been doing for uh, integration or community building, um, education, language learning. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of reconstruction, solidarity right. work that's been happening? So there's good news, right? There's Yes, there is rising xenophobia and there's this systematic um, sort of uh, harassment and, you know, detention of Syrians, but there has been solidarity movements and there has been, yet, yes, marginal voices, but there has been a voicing of a, a group of people of dissent with what's going on, right? Um, so after these recent developments, um, civil society, a civil society organization has been called, which is called uh, We Want to Live Together Initiative, mm -hmm. uh, put together by, um, you know, people who have been working with Syrians and uh, who have been providing services for them, who have been in solidarity with them, doing research with them, you know, academics, um, human rights lawyers. Lawyers actually has been a big part of this initiative as well, mm -hmm. uh, associated with the Istanbul um, Bar Association. Um, and the, the group had a protest to speak against what's been going on, saying, you know, stop deportations right now, give um, Syrians refugee status, um, end this deal with the EU, which, which has been a, one of the problems. Um, the, the one that I mentioned before, which was made between EU and Turkey in 2016, that made Turkey basically the watchdog or police for Europe's uh, both liquid and land borders by keeping Syrians in, mm -hmm. in right. return for funds, right? As well as progress on Turkey's accession to EU and visa-free travel, possibility of visa-free travel for Turkish citizens. So there's been this bargaining happening at the expense of Syrians. So we, there has been calls for all these to end and for um, exactly what you mentioned, for talking about something completely different, which we should be talking about, that's integration, that's job training, work permits, making it easier for people to get permits, for um, you know, criminalizing hate speech. Now it's become a sort of daily occurrence that I watch in the streets of Fatih that, you know, at the metro or in the, you know, playground, Syrian women and men are harassed for the smallest things that they do, you know, for just walking in the street. I mean, we've come to that point, which needs to be dealt with if we want to create a city where people feel safe and live together in, in you know, a, a certain amount of peace and mutual respect. So there has been this initiative and it's put together a brief but very um, eye-opening report about the deportations with all the evidence that I've um, talked about before has been with the pictures, with testimonies have been included in this report, which I urge people listening to this to go on their Facebook, We Want to Live Together initiative and download this brief but wonderful report to be informed. It's published in Turkish and English and Arabic. So there has been solidarity movements, um, political activism by lawyers, by activists, by um, researchers to hold the government accountable, stop the deportations, and sort of kind of share with the public what's been going on and how long it's going to go on and um, how we need to change this discourse of guests and hospitality and instead we need to talk about rights. 
um, and co-citizenship, co urban citizenship, co-residency. So th there has been these things, and of course there, there are um, Syrian intellectuals writing about these things. I would also urge people to read and follow Al-Jumhuriya, uh, which is an online publication um, with incredibly insightful analysis of what's going on both within Syria and outside with refugee communities, published in, again, English and Arabic. So, the, I mean, there's an incredible outpouring of good analysis and testimonies that people can, can follow and be, be a part of these initiatives, for sure. It's been great to listen to this because we don't really get to hear a lot in English about what's been happening in Turkey. A lot mm -hmm. of the discourse is that uh, Turkey took a lot of refugees and that is good and we agree that that's good, but there is a lot of work to do, obviously, in terms of uh, integration, in some terms of acceptance. And unfortunately, listening to you, it seems like we've taken a step back instead of forward. But that's the most terrible thing to right. watch at the right. moment, like eight years down the line, when we should be talking about precisely mm. integration, precisely living in harmony, job trainings, work permits, you know, long term plans, possibly citizenship, all these things. We're talking about all of a sudden the change in discourse about, you know, a Syrian problem, national security issue, illegal immigration, right. criminals. I mean, we were talking about the opposite of what we should be talking about after eight years of Syrian presence in this country. And right. that's that's devastating to watch. Right. I hope, despite what we've been seeing on the media, which is very heavily also reorienting towards a security discourse, I hope that things will get better in the coming months. I hope so. I hope so. With only, only solidarity movements, honestly, with only taking action and pushing for accountability and um, creating a discourse that goes against all this misinformation, mm -hmm. um, which is everywhere, which is which makes it very hard for me to read the news mm -hmm. or scroll down social media. Do you think the misinformation is a big contributor to Turkish people's reaction against Syrian refugees? I don't want to take them off the hook by saying yes, because I think there's an underlying right. deep sort of anti-Arab Racism, racism mm -hmm. and xenophobia mixed with, I would say, a little bit of Islamophobia on the mm -hmm. secular, on the part of the secular public as well. Uh, but I think there is a huge amount of misinformation. Um, for example, I mentioned the the aid card, the financial aid card mm -hmm. that uh, very vulnerable minority Syrian families get. A lot of people somehow think that the the money that goes to those um, financial assistance, which comes from the EU, actually comes out of their pockets mm -hmm. from their tax money, right. I mean, which is insane. Right. Which... This is why I'm asking this question, because oh, I also agree that there's a deep-seated um, anti-Arab racism, um, maybe also Islamophobia, but uh, there seems to be a, a strong part yeah, of economic anxiety mm -hmm. in the sentiments that people have been mm -hmm. expressing, which is not unlike what we've been seeing in the West in a discourse against mig migrants and refugees, right. right? I mean, which has been milked by, you know, politicians for right. electoral victory. <laughs> All over. Right? right. Although, I mean, right. populism, right-wing 
sort of politics which has been going on in Europe. Look at the US, it's happening here. I think a part of it might be also the fact that from the beginning, this has been such a top-down approach policy, which was not communicated at mm. all to the public to get a certain kind of consent, a certain level of consent and to inform people, right? Which gave way to these very strong um, sentiments that surfaced as completely racist at this point mm. with the, again, economic crisis and un- un- unemployment. So I think there it's a complicated sort of, it, it requires us to have a complicated analysis looking at all these factors. Right, right. And how, you know, the, the political developments have changed what has been going on with Syrians, right? Mm-hmm. Even the resource extraction debates in the Mediterranean, the negotiations with the EU, the operations in northern Syria that has to, you know, do with the US and Russia, like all these things affect how both regional, international, and domestic politics affect how Syrians are dealt with in this country. And that's why having them under this very precarious legal category has from the beginning been very, very risky. That put them in harm's way when the winds change. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to add before we close? I just hope for um, things to get better, for deportations to stop, for at least this very urgent moment to to end very soon. And then we can get back to, again, talk about what we should be talking about all along. And, you know, creating a future where Syrians as as co-residents in these cities have rights and, and, you know, that they can take roots here. I, I, I wish for that, really. Let's all wish for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is Jihan Tekai for Status. And we were here with Yasemin Uzar, who gave us some great insights about the recent wave of deportations of Syrians from Turkey and the conditions under people have been living um, since 2011. And... Uh, hope to talk to you again within <laughs> within a year with better news with better news better analysis yes well better news anyway <laughs> yes thank, thank you. you thanks for having me you've been listening to status audio magazine the status is produced by the arab studies institute in partnership with voices of the middle east and north africa co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.